Hey folks, it's Jeremy. You're listening to Blamo. How we doing? We're all here. You're here. I'm here. Give yourself a little pat on the back for getting through this week. Way to go. Whatever it is, whatever you did, you did it. Hopefully it wasn't anything bad. <laughs> uh, I had a weird week. We- weird week of smoke alarms, actually. All-, all my smoke alarms somehow went nuts this week. And they're going off. Um, I'm at the gym. This is the other day. And we have one of those Google Home things. And uh, so I'm, I'm not at home. I'm at the gym. I'm on, I don't know, I'm on an elliptical or something like that. And uh, my phone lights up and it says smoke alarm heard in the hallway. And I'm like, uh-oh, like smoke alarm. That's, that's And I like, text my wife and I'm like, hey, are you at home? It says a smoke alarm's going off. She's like, no, I'm not. And I'm like, oh, crap. And it's weird because the way that it does is it like records the sound. And so you can, you can press to hear the sound of it going off, you know, spoiler alert, it sounds like a smoke alarm. And so I, I listen to it and I'm like, oh, crap. And she's like, well, wait, if it's going off, like, should I, should I turn around? And the app is like giving me a notification. It's like, do you want, it's like, press this button to call the fire department. And I'm like, well, I don't know. I don't think it's, it's probably a false alarm. I'm sure it's fine. And I'm like, well, what if she like left the oven on or something? Like she turned the oven on in the morning. I mean, I don't know. And so I'm like, okay, I'm, I'm a little uneasy. And then, um, it, it keeps sending me notifications. It's like smoke alarm still going off, like still going off. And it then it's like, press this button to listen in. And I was like, listen in. It's, and, and you can like listen live on like the little Google Home to, I guess, like to, to my, my home is tapped, right? So I hear it and I'm like trying to see if I can hear the fire. And I'm like, do, do I hear the fire <laughs> through, through the speaker? I'd like, I got my like, you know, my, my phone into my ear as I'm like running into the car, like trying to drive home as fast as possible. I'm like, do, do, I, hear a, do I hear a fire through it? It's like, nope, I just hear a smoke alarm. So I'm like, oh, shit, like, is my house about to burn down? What's going on? So I'm in the car. I'm driving home as fast as I can. And uh, I'm like praying to God. I'm like, oh, please don't let my house be on fire. And then in my head, I was like, oh, no, like my my clothes, all, all these dumb, all these dumb things. Right. Because it's like I'm assuming that there's a possibility my house is on fire. Um, I, I get I get to the house. Thankfully, I don't live that far away uh, from the gym. And I pull into the driveway like you know, like at an angle, you know, it's like, like, like I'm a detective arriving at the scene of the crime. Like I just, I immediately just pull in. I'm like, pull in, get out of the car, run into the house. I hear the alarm going off and I walk in, nothing's going on. Alarm's going off, but no fire, no smell, no nothing. And I'm like, son of a bitch, you know, I'm almost like upset now that there isn't a fire. And so I'm trying to figure out what's going on. The alarms are still going off. And somehow they, they all, all the smoke alarms just went bad at the same time. I guess when we got the house, they replaced all the smoke alarms, but they all decided to quit all around the same time. And so now I got to replace all these smoke alarms. So I'm like, okay, crap. Like I got to go shopping for smoke alarms now. Like what, what the hell? How does this work? So I get them, I order them, they come, I start replacing them, setting them up. And, uh, these are some like fancy ones or something. I mean, it's not, you know, it's a smoke alarm, right? But they're all linked, which, you know, I'm like, okay, cool. Like now they're all set up. Everything's going to be good. The house is safe now. If there is an alarm, it's going to be for real. You know, it's um, so fast forward a couple days. Uh, it's late at night. My wife is getting ready to go to bed and some, she likes to take a shower before she goes to bed. And so she's like, look, I'm, I'm going to take a shower. Uh, I'm downstairs uh, playing video games like an idiot. And um, I got my headphones on and it's after 11. Um, and my phone like goes on do not disturb. So it kills all notifications and including what you're about to find out and kills all notifications. And then all of a sudden 
I get a notification, but I don't know it at this time. And it's like smoke alarms going off. And I'm like, what the heck? And it's like, press this button to silence it. And if, if you don't press it, it's going to actually make a noise. And well, I didn't see all of that. So it went off. And because all my smoke alarms are linked, the whole house is just blasting, piercing emergency noises. And I got both kids asleep. I got an infant in one room. I got my daughter in the other room. And so I'm now I'm running around each room, pressing the silence button to try to make sure that I'm silencing these smoke alarms. So I'm like over here and I'm running up and down. I, my, my, my freaking almost ripped the controller out of the wall as I'm try, trying to run through and do all this stuff. I go into the hallway. My wife's like, you know, standing there, like fanning the towel she was using to dry herself off, like up against the smoke alarm, like it's some sort of steam. And so I go and I press the button and now it's like, okay, everything's silent. But then my daughter's freaking out. And so I run into the bedroom and I'm like, oh, Harriet, it's okay. And she's, you know, already just going nuts. Is like, what the heck's happening? It's a piercing noise everywhere. And I'm just like, what? This is so stupid. Like, I, I you know, I'm like, how, how the hell is my wife like taking a shower in a volcano or something in there? But it's just like, now my smoke alarm's too smart because it's, it's all, it's, it's sensing just any form of water vapor. Uh, yeah. This is this is a day in the life living just living in the suburbs dealing with a smoke alarm. Here we go. Anyway, my guest this week, Mr. W. David Marks. Now, if if you're a fan of the pod and you've listened to this before, I'm sure you've heard of him. He's he's probably most known for writing this incredible book. It came out in 2015. It's called Amatora, and it, it's a book uh, about how Japan saved American style. It's first off an aside, incredible book. You should check it out. He just published his new book called Status and Culture, How Our Desire for Social Rank Creates Taste, Identity, Art, Fashion, and Constant Change. And oh man, I read this book and I just zapped through it. I read it so fast that I actually had to go back and reread some other chapters because I was like, you, you, like, you hit the zone where you're just flying through this book. But you know, I was like, maybe I'm not absorbing this as much. I mean, it's a, it's a beefy read, but it's a beautiful read. Um, and it's, it's very thought-provoking. And uh, had me a little bit uneasy at times as I was recognizing my own uh, desire for status and culture. But it's an incredible book. And so David comes on the pod this week. It's fantastic. I was super, super glad to have him. We discuss his recent book, Status and Culture, the influence of Japan on his writing, his love of 90s music, and his hidden music career. Dive in. This is one of my favorite episodes we've done in a long time. Great chat. Here we go. That's real. Yeah. My son's yeah. always teaching me stuff about history now. It's pretty cool. Really? He's like very into the Russian Revolution and things. He's like, so Trotsky got got purged and the way Stalin did it. Like, it's like, okay. Um, and, but then also, you know, the problem with YouTube is that kids also get like a ton of conspiracy theory. So I was like, I was trying to talk about... You know, hey, nuclear power may be necessary to save the planet. He's like, Dad, like, don't you can't trust the numbers you see online. You're, he said that. Yeah, I was like, only oh one person God. died in Fukushima. He's like, no, 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 no. That's that's all conspiracy. Anyway, so you just par- you, you, parenting you, challenges just get harder. I mean, it, it just it it just shifts. It just shifts to like interpersonal, normal interpersonal problems. You just knocked the wind out of me starting this. <laughs> we're talking, we got to talk about men's fashion and stuff. We're going to get it back. Yeah. Well, the funny thing isn't all men's fashion in general, just like people trying to understand their parents anyway. Yeah. <laughs> Either reclaim or go far away from your, the way your parents look. Yeah. 
It's uh, it is quite strange. But no, just on the the kids stuff. Like my my daughter just discovered my band, mm. and um, a friend of ours is in a band that's really big. And he like I showed a video of him playing, and she was like, "Wow!" And she's like, you know, she's like, "How many people is he playing in front of?" And she's almost five, so she's like young enough to understand reality, but not old enough to understand everything else. And I was like, "Oh, I was like, well, I think there's like a hundred thousand people." And she was like, oh my God. She's like, I want to play in a band in front of a hundred thousand people. And I was like, whoa, 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 slow down. And my wife was like, oh, your dad used to be in a band. And she's like, I want to hear it. And I played it for her. And this was like, it was the best feeling I've had in ages. She heard it and she was like, oh, you sing? She was like, you can sing. And like, she, it was, she was proud of me. It was, it was so cool. It like, it, it altered everything. Which did you... Do you play guitar and sing or just sing? Yeah, I used I used to be in a band and I moved to New York to play in my band. And my band, I'm air quoting, was literally just me. It was, mm-hmm. I played guitar and piano and sang. And like, I was basically like trying to do some version of like the shins. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Weren't we all? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, because this is like 2005. Yeah. you know, or, or 2004 even maybe, I don't know. But yeah, so I was in a band and, and we, we made some music and like toured around, did some stuff, but it was never, you know, I did play, I did play Boston, played a uh, middle East a bunch of times. Love the middle East. I saw yeah, promise that's... ring there. I saw Buffalo daughter play for four people. One of which was me. Um, <laughs> what else did I see there? I one time went to the middle East and I, I, I was like, I'm going to skip the opening band. And, um, I showed up for the promise ring like, you know, five minutes before they started. And I was like, this sucks. You need like an opening <laughs> band to get into it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which I didn't you do. I, yeah. Well, I, I think the promise ring is a specific type of music to it. That's not necessarily like the teenage angst. <laughs> I mean, there's, yeah, it's, uh, there's not a lot of energy, I guess, in some of the stuff. I don't know. Um, that's funny. Yeah. Middle East though, man, that's, that's the vibe. Yeah. That's the spot. Love that place. Um, so how have things been? Uh, I am fine. Uh, you know, it has been busy with the book coming out. I wrote my first book, which was quite niche. And when it came out, I think I had very little expectation of anyone reading it at all. And no one was going to say anything about it unless it was nice because you don't trash a book about obscure topics out of nothing. Well, um, this is the internet age. But right. Sure. Well, I, mean, I think I expected that. I mean, I, now I know, but yeah, I expected like, oh, it's going to come out and people are going to say, no, the first Japanese denim was 71, not 72, you idiot. But actually people were kind of like, oh yeah, I guess, I guess so. Um, but then this new one, because it's so broad, it's about status and culture. Everyone is going to have some disagreement with it. There's no, there's no way that someone's going to read this book and say, oh, yeah, got it all right. Um, and so it just kind of starts with immediate critique in a way that I was I was a little coddled by Amatora. So it's been it's been good. It's been like a lot of um, a lot of opportunities to talk to people, to finesse my message over time, to figure out what I'm actually you know trying to say. Um, but it's been it's been a bit of a roller coaster. Have how have you handled the criticism? Because I feel like especially things that that um, analyze you know social hierarchy yeah. and also explain that there's that's got a pick at some people's buried wounds. I imagine I brought this upon myself. Let's not. <laughs> 
Let's not mince words here. Uh, it's all my fault for opening myself up for this. I'm going back to writing niche books, you know, because <laughs> no one criticizes you for that. No, I, the criticisms are fine. And I actually welcome it in the sense that the reason I wrote the book is I felt that there was not a good book that just explains how culture works. And so I wanted to write that book and kind of put in there everything in terms of how I think it works in class, subcultures, art, how it all meshes together. I'm sure I got stuff wrong. You got to start from somewhere. It's great to get criticisms that are like, oh, you need to read this person and put that into the model as well. Love that kind of thing. I think most of the criticisms are more like, uh, you wrote a different book than the one I wanted, so I'm going to critique it as the other book that I wanted. And then you you just, it's hard to answer that criticism because it's like, you're right, I did not write that book. Uh, or... Uh, this is good, but it doesn't reference my book. Well, so therefore I have to ding you on scholarship. I'm not going to mention the high profile economist who said that, but you know, uh, so you get these critiques that you can't quite answer because they're just really unfair and that's not fun. So I think, I think the bad faith in a lot of critique really bugs me because I would like to be in good faith and stay in good faith. But I think the criticisms where it, it uh, in some ways they misunderstand what I'm trying to say and I have to more clearly state this is what I mean oh. and, and go back to my newsletter and write something. I think that's useful because I figure out what I'm trying to say and what I believe a little bit better in when people misunderstand and I have to come back. So, you know, for example, there's a lot of criticism saying David Marks thinks all cultural activity is status seeking, which I don't believe. And what I'm simply trying to say is that status infects all of our judgments and especially aesthetic judgments to a degree that you can't quite tell and it's quite unconscious so that when we choose dog breeds, for example, you're not like, I'm going to get a golden retriever and it's going to allow me to mark my superiority over my neighbors. Like nobody consciously thinks that. I mean, maybe somebody does, but almost nobody does. But the fact that right, right. you want a breed dog to start with, that is a judgment that has status baked into it because the idea that we believe that breed dogs are better than non-breed dogs goes back to like some sort of 19th century aristocratic British idea. It didn't come yeah, out of yeah. nowhere. So so that that's, I think, what I'm trying, trying to do is just look at the degree to which this whole status system creates uh, the standards in which we decide things are beautiful or cool or fashionable or, or all these things. It's not to say that every single person's judgment is 100% related to this or that every single person is seeking status. But Anyway, if you just read the book title, you're like, yeah, this book's, he just believes everything status. End of story. Don't need to read it. There was also a great, this is just going to get into like writer grievance. Uh, very cool. Oh, this but, is great. But, I'm here for it. Go off. But uh, the, also the amount of sub stacks that I launched, uh, like before the book even came out that had the sentence, I have not read Marx's book, but... And like, don't finish the sentence if, you know, after, but, but they're all like, but this book sounds really stupid. <laughs> and so it's like, just, just read the book guys. Well, I, okay. I think there's two things though. One, everyone wants to have a hot take, Yeah. right? Like we all want a hot take and we want to give a hot take. And I think people are looking for the shortcuts for hot takes because to give an opinion on a piece of literature, in most cases, historically, you would have had to have fully digested the literature. Like you don't hear me going off on Dickens because I haven't read it all, you know? And so like, but I think too, 
because here's the thing, like all like your voice and how you write is really, really great. I mean, it's very beautiful. It's very, you know, um, and it, it is very academic in a way. And so I think when people feel like that, there's like this idea that they want to challenge it. And I think like when you got a ton of love, like the New York Times piece, the NPR stuff, like all of the people that I feel like really care about the status stuff yeah. you hit all of their you know all of their goals and so it's just like everyone's looking for the clap back the downside is i'm like well you're like you're this you know upstanding you know kind gentleman that you know gets to see the world from all these places it makes me wonder like are you at least in a text thread with a few other friends where you can just be like man fuck this dude like because yeah. you've got to have that feeling, right? <laughs> totally. No, absolutely. You have that feeling. And I think the thing that was disappointing was, you know, the first New York Times piece came out before the book came out. The NPR piece came yeah. out before the book came out. So like on day one of the book coming out, you already had it primed for backlash. And I was like, could I have just a week of the book <laughs> being out where people are like, "That's that sounds cool. I, yeah, yeah. I'd like to read that instead of... Uh, I haven't read this, but it's terrible. So yeah, there was actually, there was definitely a part of me that feels that. Uh, I am in the process of acquiring thicker skin, but it's not a fun process. And uh, you get re- you get used to it. And yeah, you have some friends that you say, well, this seems unfair. And they said, that person should be embarrassed to have written that. And you say, yeah, that's true, but still sucks for someone not to read something or misunderstand it and criticize it. I don't know. I mean, this, it comes with the territory. It's all my fault. No one to blame but myself, but, uh, it's not fun. Well, that's, I think that's, that's mature of you, I guess, to, to look at it that way. But at the same time, yeah, like it's not fun. I mean, like I keep trying to have this perspective because I don't know. I mean, I don't know how much you listen to the pod or whatever, but it's like a part of me is like this. It's, I feel like I'm in this hamster wheel of joy, but at the same time, because I live through my phone and I live on the internet, you can't progress without measuring your progression against someone else. And there's always someone else who has achieved more, done more, spent more, made whatever that is. And so it really messes with my head and, you know, into where it makes me like, I wish I didn't have to have Instagram. I wish I didn't have to like exist on the internet, but I can arguably trace steps of, I'm going to air quote success or achievement or whatever for the show or my life and career based on me existing or DMing someone on Instagram and something happening from that. So it's like, I really, really hate all this stuff, (laughs) but I feel like if I complain about it, Someone's going to be like, well, fuck you, because you're at this level. And and what I don't realize, and I literally was having this conversation with a person on DM five minutes before we were recording. And I was like, well, you got to have this like idea and attitude of gratitude. I mean, not to try to rhyme, but like if you think that way you're going to also remember that you're that person to someone else. Mm -hmm. Like someone else is probably like, man, F Jeremy, like he's done something else when it's like, really like, do you realize that I am a ball of anxiety and I like, you know, have to go to the bathroom like three times before I get on an airplane. Like, do you, do you want this life? Right, right, right. Yeah, no, I think that is something you misunderstand as a young person is that you look at, you know, I, I was into music too and made music and and you saw someone on a compilation album and you were like, oh. is there any greater achievement than being on this split seven inch or something? You're like, that person, they must just wake up every day and triumph. And then, <laughs> and then you have some moment like that and you realize like you get you know, 10 minutes of being like, that was cool. And then what's next? And, you know, in the book, I do just to, you know, tie it back to my own marketing. In the book, I look at, there's a bunch of research that shows that the more status you get, it never satiates you. You always want more. Yeah. And it, it is a thing. And um, you have to keep pushing. I 
I have found having a bunch of small achievable goals has been great because you actually achieve them. I don't, there's a lot of people who start with huge ambitions and that always seems heartbreaking and maybe it pushes them to go a lot further, but it seems quite difficult where I've really wanted to just be on a compilation CD and, you know, or, or, you know, these small things. If only I could have an article in on newyorker.com, the website, you know, that would be incredible. And it, it, it does feel great. It's not the end of anything, but it's nice to celebrate those moments once in a while. But you absolutely forget it once you're in the middle of it. And then you look again to the people right above you that have one additional thing, they have one additional digit in their Instagram follower account. And you're like, <laughs> yeah, I'm nobody. Everybody dislikes me. Um, it's tough. And uh, it's so funny you were saying, I, I don't want to be on Instagram and all this. And I just feel like so many people say this and feel this right now. And and it, uh, I think about a lot um obesity in, let's say the, I don't know when this was, 16th century, 17th century was a marker of status because you had to have a lot of Rubenesque. Food, yeah. To get, to get big. And then yeah. potato farming more or less made it where anybody could get surplus calories. And so then becoming really healthy and skinny became the marker of status. And you think about the internet for a long time, being more and more on the internet was a marker of status. Like I have so much technology. I'm, I have so many accounts on different platforms. And now is it going the other way where you know that you have made it if you don't have to be on Twitter, if you don't have to be on Instagram, if you've got a if you've got a person who checks your email for you. So there is this fantasy of getting so successful you don't have to be on social media anymore. And uh I I I don't know. I don't know what that portends for social media, but it's almost like everyone is begrudgingly using it. And um I, you know, there's, there's parts of Instagram I like and part, definitely parts of Twitter I like, but it's also just completely frustrating when you feel like I've got the post that's going to be the post and then it gets three, <laughs> three pity likes and you're just like, okay, I have no idea how this platform works. I have no idea what the kids are into. And then you open TikTok and you have to close it within 15 seconds because you're like, this is not for me. I don't know what this is, but it's not my thing. And I got, I need to run away as fast as possible. Right. Like I, it's interesting. You mentioned like the status of getting away from all of that stuff because I don't know I might be misquoting the actor's name but it's like Anthony Hopkins doesn't have anything other than a phone um you know and that like that's that's all he has and so there's no email he's not you know now look it's Anthony Hopkins like yeah. dude's kind of been around for a while but there's you know I feel like there are other folks who are probably around our age and they you know like my old boss here's a good example my old boss would only check his email two times a day and that was his thing because he was very strict about how he um basically like how he you know was productive and so he had certain times a day where he would go in he would check all of his emails he would respond to everything and then close, you know, send everything, close his laptop, and then he'd check it later on that day because he would be doing meetings and he'd do other things. Right. And, you know, he would always talk about like, this is how we need to be productive. And I was, and one time I got, I got in kind of trouble for it. And I was like, this is bullshit because, <laughs> because you own all of these companies, you get to dictate that. I was like, no one is going to do this. I was like, I was like, if I, I was like, if you reach out to me and I say, sorry, I'm not going to respond or check this for the next six or eight hours because I'm trying to, you know, <laughs> follow your levels of productivity. Yeah. Yeah. I was like, I would be in trouble, yep. you know? And he was like, hey, I guess you're right. But yep. it's like, I, th there is a luxury in being disconnected, but still being, you know, some degree of connectivity like to the world. I mean, I, I definitely strive for that. I mean, there's tons of actors and people who it's like, yeah, no, I mean, it is, it is uh, a privilege 
of the top to be able to check email two times a day. The same way you need to put your feet on a desk. You know, I mean, the you don't put your feet on the your your desk when the boss comes in. The boss gets to yeah. do that, right? So it's the same thing. You know, if if you're on the top, you people have to deal with your schedule. But um, yeah, well, the, there's there's definitely some stuff I want to talk about with the book, and obviously you too. But you've been living in Japan for how long? 19 years. Okay. And correct me if I'm wrong. I, my interactions in Japan have been very short and brief. Um, but Japan is a very status-based society. I mean, push back on everything that I'm going to say mm-hmm. if you disagree, please. Was that environment, especially you as a non-Japanese individual living in Japan, how much did your experience in the Japanese environment, the work environment, um, the social environment affect you like maybe like putting the pause button and, and observing things a little bit differently? Like, did it did it affect your desire to make this book at all? Yes. I mean, my personal relationship with Japan is complicated in that I, I very formally learned Japanese at school and was a very diligent student. And the good thing about learning Japanese is that people in Japan are quite warm and receptive to you learning the language and they're very tolerant of mistakes and they're very encouraging. And it's somewhat obsequious at the beginning because it's kind of this fake, like, wow, you're really good at Japanese. And everyone starts to make fun of it, but it's still better than learning another language where people are like, I don't understand what you're saying because you're obviously... <laughs> So terrible at this. Um, so I had, I had studied French and German in high school and just felt like those were very, Jeez. very difficult. And then Japanese was a lot easier in many ways, but also people were just inviting and warm about it. So I decided to learn, keep going. And then when you show up and learn Japanese, um, people are nice to you. I think that there is a lot of discrimination in Japan against people of non-Western descent who move here. And so being American, being white, being a male, being tall, all those have privileges. So you can be an outsider, but you're kind of a uh, special type of outsider. So I, I can't take that away from my per- personal experience. It's just my, my experience being in Japan is very different than a fluent Thai immigrant who looks more or less Japanese to Japanese people and, you know, may get a couple of the manners wrong and, and is tr- treated harshly mm. because of that, for example. So I just, I, I can't extend my experience to every immigrant in Japan, but I've the my background and then also the institutions I was uh, related to and like being at uh, university here at grad school you just I was treated relatively well I I don't think it was the personal treatment that got me interested in this book and and I really have tried to always take myself out of the equation in that a lot of people move to Japan see everything and they think you know what the most interesting thing to, about Japan is the most interesting thing about Japan is me me living in Japan I should write a book about me living in Japan how <laughs> It's crazy. I'm in Japan. Um, and I really dislike that. And I just, I've never been interested in that. And there's so much really cool stuff going on with music, art, fashion, all of that. So I've tried to chronicle it and make those people the heroes and take myself out. Now, I, there are some privileges in being a foreigner interested in these things. For Amatora, I got to interview all these people that I'm sure a Japanese journalist would not have been able to interview because they would have said, oh, well, there's a million books on this in Japan. I don't need to talk to anybody else. But as an American being like, I'm going to write this book in English about your history. Everyone's like, hey, you know, anytime. So, um, you know, I use that privilege to my advantage to get all these interviews and get access and hear a lot of great things that made made the book 
more interesting. But uh, anyway, I, I I digress, and I think the main thing this the main thing about living in Japan that led to thinking about the book is just thinking about fashion in general. Because I grew up in Pensacola, Florida. Um, you you grew up in Missouri. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, if you grew up in the South, more or less, um, fashion in the 90s was not a thing, right? I mean, nobody no. talked about fashion. I mean, there was clothing, there was style. And I, I saw somebody in a Nine Inch Nails t-shirt in, in Harajuku the other day. And it was like, it was the Sin t-shirt, like the S-I-N. And I remember- That's like a thousand dollar shirt. I'm sure, I'm sure. But I remember <laughs> seeing that in like a Burning Airlines t-shirt catalog in like 1994 and being like, holy cow, if I only had the $15 to get this t-shirt, this would be the coolest t-shirt. But just remembering how much band t-shirt were the highest value possible garments in a high school in like the 90s. So fashion had, had nothing to do with nothing to do with my life, no interest in it. House of Style comes on MTV, I turn the channel, right? Like I watch everything on MTV except for House of Style, just not interested. Like why am I watching runway shows in New York? Nothing to do with my life. So I go mm -hmm. to Japan in 98 and the and being in Harajuku or just walking around anywhere, like everyone's dressed immaculately in versions of things I already wear. So people are wearing t-shirts, but they're fitted, they're perfect, they're, they've got tags on the sleeves, they're wearing jeans, but they're straight leg, dark denim with the salvage, they're wearing sneakers, but they're rare Adidas superstars. And I was, I was just like, why is everyone dressed so well? What is going on? What What is this thing? And so I got interested in fashion from that somewhat, you know, peer pressure of being there and feeling really poorly dressed. But then in discovering bathing ape and the fact that people were waiting in line for three hours to buy t-shirts and this underground brand had so much popularity and the you know, people were buying t-shirts for $70 and selling them for $300 a year later. All, all that culture that we're now used to, there was just no context for it in, in the US. And if you remember at the time, like 1999, 2000, you go to Supreme in New York and you walk in and you're like, I would like a t-shirt. And they're like, it's $25. Thanks. And you're like, great, here's my $25. And you walk out. Yeah. So there, there really isn't this resale culture and there isn't, there aren't lines yet. Um, if there were lines, it would be, uh, Japanese buyers from the countryside who would just go in and be like, yeah, can I get 4,000 t-shirts? And they'd be like, sure, here they are. And they would just go back and sell them, you know, at, at marked up prices. So uh, anyway, so the point is, I, you know, I was trying to figure out what is it about Japan and Japanese culture that makes everyone so interested in fashion when Americans don't seem to be. And uh, in doing that research, I, you, the main thing you realize is that you can have people in Japan be into cool stuff the same way that Americans are into cool stuff. So, you know, for me, it's like growing up in the South, you had to know someone who knows somebody to learn about some cool band or you have to watch MTV. And uh, it still felt rare to be into indie culture or to be, you know, watching indie films or whatever this is. And then you go to Japan and there'd be like a Wong Kar Wai film festival and they'd be showing all of his films at this giant theater. And it just seemed like all this indie culture was everywhere. Or I went to a department store and they were selling Techniques 1200 uh, turntables, just like at a normal department store. And, you know, I went back to the US trying to find them. I don't, I didn't even know where to start and in, in looking for them. So it seemed like all this indie culture was very big in Japan and I couldn't figure out what it was. And what, what I started to unpack was that it was the magazine's that would kind of feed this lifestyle recipe to kids and then they would follow it 
directly. And so you looked at the kind of role of information in making consumerism and trends happen and the way that it was processed and the way it's processed differently in the US and Japan. And I think trying to understand that whole system is what introduced me to the idea of how trends work and why trends are different in Japan and the US and the mechanisms of it. And from there, just trying to learn more about that, you start reading some of the classical theories and then the idea of status kind of you know floats up as one of the main drivers that makes fashion makes sense. Because if you don't understand status, fashion makes no sense at all. It just seems like this incredibly irrational thing. Once you understand status, fashion becomes really rational and trends become, they make a lot of sense. And so that that's where it came from. I think just taking myself out of the US and out of the really, in some ways, provincial mindset of believing that the US is the world and that the values that we have in the US of like being a, being a rebel is the most important thing in the world, but also the the ridiculousness that I even noticed at age 14 of seeing all these kids rebel in the exact same cookie cutter way and trying to be right. like, I'm going to rebel in this slightly different way that uses some old, old things with the new things. Everyone's like, nah, nah, you're, you're lame. So, you know, that, that kind of process in which you realize the only way to get uh, validation from the cool kids was to dress, you know, in this cookie cutter way that really bothered me as a kid and also just was the beginning of me saying like maybe these values given to us in the United States are a little bit contradictory and they don't they aren't some sort of perfect system anyway that's a really long answer but I, I think it is just in general the cross-cultural comparison between Japan and the US that turned me on to thinking about how culture works yeah I mean I, I that's really interesting it also sounds like you've there's been much more like you strike me as an external observationist right like there but but how you're communicating, it seems like you've done a lot of internal processing about this. Like you immediately, you know, reminded me of the privileges that you are, that you've, you know, received and been born with and that kind of set you apart. Um, you know, but do you do a lot of deep introspective thinking on your own? Because like, and to, to kind of put an asterisk yeah. on this, because that's a, somewhat of a vague question. Um, it just, you know, I think the thing that I connect to the most from your writing are the tiny bits of your personal life that I am like, oh yeah, because now I can identify with that. Maybe it's a, it's it's a it's a crutch or some sort of mindset that I have into which I I I look for empathetic connections versus strictly educational experiences right. through some of these things. But like when you the chapter of you writing about how you wrote the ghostwriting bakers as the clap back to Kanye, yeah. you know, and even then you reference because you know the NewYorker.com, like which is where that was in there. Like there was there was like a personal victory. Like there was like a joy in that versus some of the more reportive style things. Yeah. And I'm just curious like how often you explore that. Yeah, I, I'm a little shy about it to be honest, just because I saw sometimes think my own experiences are a little bit cliche, but also a little bit um, so stereotypical for a late early millennial, late Gen X, you know, whatever, whatever I am, but like that, you know, like the sure, fairy yeah. tale of Gen X who grew up in the US. Like I, you know, I, I know all those things and I try not to, I try to distance myself from them so that I could try to see things more objectively instead of saying, um, you know, music sucks right now because it's not like stereo lab or something. Like, I just don't want to make those <laughs> conclusions because I, I'm just trying to discount my own 
taste, right? And so in some ways, I think that's where it comes from. But, you know, I or, or just the, this, I don't know, I don't know if it's Southern or just trying to be modest and not, you know, brag brag about things. But um, yeah, I mean, like, I don't, I think people don't know my bi- biography well because of it, you know? So I, you know, 1999, a friend and I made the first Bathing Ape webpage. Like this was before brands had webpages. Like we didn't, we didn't make it as in Bathing Ape asked us to make it. We just like made an unofficial Bathing Ape webpage. And then, you know, I wrote the first reviews on Superfuture for New York. Like I started the Superfuture New York map and wrote for Business of Fashion. But like, I always get out of these things like, you know, immediately and then nobody remembers identity of it. So yeah, I mean, my, I, I um, don't talk about this stuff that much just because it's, uh, I really want to write about the universal laws of culture and, mm-hmm. and especially, you know, for something like Amatora, it's that I'm not the story at all. Right. Correct. Everybody in it's, that it's book a very, is yeah. a million times more interesting yes. than I am. So it's like, just tell their story, get out of the way. I think with a new one, there's hints of me all over the book, just in the sense of, you know, I, there's an example I use around Beck, the first Beck interview ever yes. in 120 minutes. And I saw that in real time, like as a kid and just thought it was the weirdest thing. And it wasn't until later I understood anything he was talking about. Um, Or, you know, there's an example with Liz Fair. I don't know. There's a bunch of really 90s examples in that book that are just because that's that's what's close to me. So it, it comes out, but I just try not to lean into it. I'm not a memoirist. Like, I really do want to find the universal ideas out there. Oh, yeah. I would never say that you should do a memoir, even though I would love to read it. It's it's, But I think because everyone feels that they're an author right now and a creator and a podcaster and, you know, everyone is making their own content, I feel like there's this barrage of information at me at all. All times and all it takes for people to believe like we were discussing earlier is to speak with an authoritative you know mindset and attitude and so I find myself in a good way and occasionally a bad way measuring the authority of what someone's saying based on my personal connections with them or my personal you know it's I mean there, there's an example of people like to watch their news right I'm, I just air quoted the their news because they are like oh that's my person or that's my guy that's my shooter and that sort that sort of thing and there is a bit of a line to toe at times, but I feel like with the stuff that you're sharing and discussing, there's a lot of people who have economists, other ringdings and bing bongs that have talked about culture and that stuff, but it's dry and it's, it's, it's boring. But when you were using personal things that happened, some of that stuff, I was like, yeah, that, that's that's an experience. He didn't he didn't pull that out of the <laughs> out of the Library of Congress here. Yeah. Like there's some stuff there, and I really connected with it, and I I, I enjoyed it like thoroughly. That's, yeah, you know, it's funny you mentioned the Beck stuff because that was you know one of the things on there is like Beck is a you're a similar Beck style person, and to which like Beck has done a handful of interviews, but you really have to pull like 200 interviews together to make the interview. That's like you know the Rolling Stone interview, and uh, you know I I I love hearing more about your life and your journey because they make the things that you produce feel more rich than anything else. Yeah. I, I mean, I appreciate you saying that, but it's, it, it really does strike at some weird psychological issue I have, which is just like <laughs> to get out of the way of my own writing. And, but at the same time, I know yeah, when I fair. read, when I read other people talk about themselves, I'm like, tell me more, you know, I, I get it. Like, or yeah. I, you know, I, um, I, I loathe to just be like, I remember this time I bought this album. But then when I read other people talk about their first experience, you know, listening to Pavement or something, I'm like, yeah, like, 
Where were you? When when was that? How did that happen? Um, so I don't know. I mean, I, I think especially with this new book, because it's so specifically trying to say these are universal laws. I yes, was reading as many sense. as many crazy yeah. things as possible to also make sure that I'm not just extrapolating my experiences as well, that's everybody's experience. And certainly, you know, one of the things I write about in the book is this idea of the principle of detachment, which is that uh, the the least high status thing you can do is to look like you want status. Like to be really mm-hmm. high status means you don't have to plead for it. And so anything that seems like you're trying to make people understand how high status you are is a low status act. And I think about that quite a bit. And I grew up in, I grew up in an upper middle class household that was very anti-nouveau riche and kind of borrowed a lot of its values from old money even though we weren't old money. And that detachment makes a lot of sense to me. There's something that's just uncouth about braggery. And I think most people- A humbleness. Yeah. Like just being humble is seen as a little bit a classier thing to do. But then you go into Instagram and people like (laughs) sitting on top of their- you know, gold uh, Mercedes Benz. Who it's like a sixteen-year-old dropshipper kid who's like, you know, I bought my I bought yeah. my parents eight of these. Um, <laughs> and you're like, this principle of detachment just does not exist anymore. And so, you know, for me, that makes a lot of sense. I think for certain communities, that has made a lot of sense. That principle does that ex- still exist? Do you still get punished for showing off? I don't know. I mean, that's something to think about. But what was important is just to make sure that that principle it logically makes sense, but to find versions of it across the world that that say it's not simply just an American old money principle. Yeah. No, that's, I mean, that's very true, especially when you, you know, a friend of mine read your book and he's British, you know, and he's like very, he's probably listening to this, but he's very, very British. Like he's, uh, um, you know, went to Eton, sort of British, yep. like old, an old boy style thing. Like his family was in clubs and he was, he's in a club. And when I hung out with him in London, we went to his club and his thing. And like, there is the status thing that's on there. And he's also a very, I mean, he's not going to care. I say this, like, he's a very like kind of Holden Caulfield sort of dude into which like a hard rebellion, but at the same time, there is, you know, a bit of exploration in, um, you know, like, cause his family has a 500 year estate, you know, and right. like Scottish Highlands sort of like crap, you know, but I think there's, there's now a lot of people and maybe it's an age thing. I, I don't know, but there's this, it, it feels like the world is on fire and everything is really crazy. And so now all of a sudden we're like, okay, how did we get here? Maybe the best way we start doing this is to look inward and try to connect these dots of why we're, why has culture evolved to the way that it is? Maybe we should turn around and see, oh, it was because it was our fascination with, you know, wealth, money, da, 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 that brought us to this point. And I think sometimes that causes us to look inward. Like a friend of mine, the guy I was referring to, he's had this crazy obsession lately to study his family tree and to find find out like members of his family that uh, could be disgraced based on like things that they did, you know, and he's worried that someone's going to do some report on him and his family that would like cancel him or whatever. And I was like, okay, like there's stuff in there, but like history is gnarly as hell. Like, look at the Catholic church, man. Like, (laughs) I mean, there's just stuff in there. And I think like just this constant examination and looking inward at ourselves, there's no way we're going to find harmony or something that backs up our opinions now. I think there's this, you know, and, and I'm I'm rambling a tiny bit, but like the, the bigger point is like being okay with the messiness of how we got to where we got to instead of like for him, well, let me explain all of these things. And now it's easier for us to digest and now we can feel better about it and let's move forward. When it's like, no, 
this happened and it was wrong and it's weird, but it happened. And, you know, let's evolve and, and be better about it. Yes. I mean, the, the, the two that I get quite bothered about, though, because they're we don't need them is, you know, Coco Chanel, total Nazi collaborator. And you yeah. should you should read up. <laughs> Funny on you mentioned it. that, and I was like, mm, he was like, you mentioned Chanel a bunch. I was like, she is, is she canceled? Can can yeah. we do that? <laughs> um, I mean, she, she only didn't get executed after the war because she had some high connections. But you know, absolute utter collaborator trying to help the Nazis uh, get a peace plan with France, and then. Uh, Edward VIII. Like every time I see Edward VIII on a men's style blog, being like this guy, greatest, greatest fashion leader ever. Just like he was a Nazi, like a Nazi <laughs> sympathizer. Like you don't, we don't need him. There's other good-looking guys who dress well. We don't need. You mean Nazi the, the, the Duke of Windsor? Yeah, yeah. Like we don't. Yeah, we don't need him. So, uh, yeah. I mean, if there's some obscure member of your family who did something bad that was in history, I can see. You know. You need you need to have a reckoning, maybe, but we don't need to po- celebrate in pop culture open Nazi collaborators. That okay, I agree with. Yeah, but you're the one who had Coco Chanel in your book. I have Coco I Chanel didn't... in the book, but and and she, <laughs> I, she is kind of she's iconic in the sense of her story is is uh, representative. But you know, she's not great. I don't know. I mean, I don't I don't think that I mention everyone in the book because they're heroes. They're they're mentioned as examples. So I, um, if you read the well, book, I think you're, that, not, that kind you're of... not going to take away the idea that I'm I'm huge, hugely a fan of Coco Chanel. No, no, and uh, yeah, I'll be very clear that you did not write about her as like someone that you praised. But I think that's the thing too, where it's like we put so much stock in you know in these in like the past and these legends and these figureheads. You know, it's like like I used to obsess over Da Vinci when I was younger. One because I I. First, I got into him from Ninja Turtles, like anyone else. And then eventually I started to figure out Da Vinci. And I was like, yo, this guy was not the guy. <laughs> and the dude was just like running his own art factory. And he wasn't this like crazy genius. Mm-hmm. And and like the dude was obsessed with war and he's obsessed with all these other things. And it really kind of messed up my head a bit. And it's, you know, a lot of these things, I think there's like, and maybe it's an American thing and that we just put all of our hopes and dreams and our identity and in these individuals. And it's like, what, what do you think we should do as humans to try to not like make every athlete our hero? And so when they are human and do human things, it doesn't just absolutely destroy us, you know? Cause I was like, what, Da Vinci did this? Or, you know, Chanel did this? Like, what, well, wh- who am I? <laughs> I, I've never thought about the influence of the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles and getting young American kids interested in Renaissance art, but that... Welcome to the pod. Yeah, <laughs> that, that's incredible. Um, I mean, The Simpsons, for me, like introduced me to a million different things. Because you would see a reference to Citizen Kane and be like, what's Citizen Kane? Or um, yeah, yeah. there's jokes about... Vicky's... Animaniacs did a good job of that, too. Yeah, Animaniacs know. was very good. But um, yeah, there's, there's jokes about Wittgenstein on the Simpsons, you know, and you're like, I guess I got to read that now. Um, but, uh, Anyway, what are we what are we talking about? We're talking about contentious stuff. Kill your idols. Yeah, is I, basically the the theme. Yeah, I mean, I I, I um, had this idea for a book called "They're All Assholes," and it was just going to be biographies of every major writer you've ever heard of. Because if you go read their Wikipedia pages, you'll just be like, oof, like on every single one, you're like, oh yeah, um, they're not they're not great people. And and yeah, I, have I don't you read want, Hemingway's late. <laughs> yeah, and I don't want to. I don't want to also fetishize like the <laughs> idea that you have to be an asshole to be like a great artist. But you know, 
at least for that whole generation, there's quite quite a correlation. Well, I feel like that's also why, I don't know, maybe there's this through line, because you've mentioned a lot of indie rock musicians. And as far as I know, Malcolmus hasn't been canceled yeah. yet. Um, you know, I do recall a conversation I overheard where Thurston Moore was, this was right around the time where the first pavement reunion shows were happening. And they were like, it was like through Golden Voice, which is like a big promoter thing. And they were getting a million a show. This is like public knowledge, by the way. So, you know, I'm not violating anything. And um, Thurston Moore was like, man, I wish Sonic Youth would have broken up a long time ago so we could come back and do these shows. Because like Sonic Youth was also touring, you know, and it was like nowhere near yeah. a seven-figure payday for a show. Maybe they're getting it now, but this was eons ago. And I think like, you know, those those guys have had relatively uh pretty damn good, pretty damn good track record. So I mean you you put it you put a lot of a lot of stock in in your indie rock gods. You know, Malgmus living in Portland's probably good for him. Keeps him keeps him on his toes. Sure. Um, I don't know. I saw Thurston Moore in Tokyo Airport. He's very tall, which you know. Did you say anything to him? No. Why not? Um, I don't know what to say. Mr. Moore, I really like that guitar solo that's like... (laughs) Or something. (laughs) I don't know. He was like, uh, that was Lee. Yeah. (laughs) Like, toes. Um, yeah, wait, so... But, like, oh, but, like, Youth Against Fascism, I think I've heard someone else say this, but, like, Youth Against Fascism, that song came out, what is it, like, 92 or 93, um, and it was mm-hmm. during the whole Clarence Thomas and Nita Hill thing, and I was in the South, and, of course, everyone's super pro Clarence Thomas, and just hearing, yeah. like, on TV somebody, somebody say, I believe Anita Hill, it was like, shit, like, this is this is good, there's there's good people out there, so, I don't know, the... Um, maybe, maybe he got canceled for something else, but at least, at least in 92, as a young kid in the South, it felt inspirational to hear somebody do a song called Youth Against Fascism and call out these people. Yeah. I mean, how, how much of music really shaped your, your love of the truth? My love of the truth? I have no idea, but my love of like culture all comes from music. Absolutely. And, um, I, so I was born in Oklahoma, moved to Mississippi when I was about six. So I was in Oxford, Mississippi for three years. And my brother's eight years older. And I remember at the very end of being in Mississippi, his senior year of college of high school, he got really into REM suddenly. I don't know how, but he just got really into REM and REM came to visit. And I remember my parents were out of town and he skipped school to go buy tickets. Um, and so he was really into REM suddenly. And I started listening to REM just because it was around. And so what was this murmur? This was between, I guess it was document, but it was kind of life, okay. life's rich pageant into document kind of era. And um, so I woke up every morning hearing Superman and, you know, it's into the world as we know it and I feel fine was like a really, you know, huge song for, if you're nine years old, you're like, this is a cool song. There's a lot of words. There's so many words in the song. <laughs> um, and, you know, when Billy Joel, we didn't start the fire comes out, you're like, oh, that's just an REM ripoff, you know? So as yeah. at nine or 10, I'm already insufferable. And then he goes to college and just starts sending home tapes to my sister and I. And so I'm listening to 10,000 Maniacs and the Sugar Cubes and all this kind of stuff is like, you know. And so once you once you get there and you're listening to indie music or alternative music, college rock as, as it was known at the time, and then you turn on the TV or listen to the radio and it's Bon Jovi, you know that there's a discrepancy and you know that you are into this thing that's much better than everyone else. And so, you know, that sense of taste 
developed really early for me from music. And then with Nirvana, I was never the biggest Nirvana fan, but I understood the moment, which is that suddenly, even in your middle school, like the kids that were cool before Nirvana were more or less what I would call like a proto fraternity guy, jock, or like somebody who was just going to escalate up into going to University of Georgia and being in a frat. And... Um, the, after Nirvana, it was like suddenly the cool kids were, you know, wearing band t-shirts and chain wallets and, um, you know, it, it really changed overnight. And I just remember that being this triumphant moment of like, we won, like we took over culture. And then with indie film too, I mean, when Pulp Fiction got big, it was suddenly like, you know, the world can have great taste. It doesn't have to be this, this fight between marginalized indie art and mainstream. And so the 90s were really exciting for that fact. But I think, you know, music got me into more music, which got me into watching MTV. And then MTV gets you into things like uh, comedy. I mean, I I guess also comedy was a big deal. Um, My brother and sister were really into Late Night with David Letterman, SNL. Um, I watched The Simpsons. My sister, I remember, called me and she's like, you got to watch these shorts on Tracy Ullman for this thing called The Simpsons. Mm. So I I was watching it even then. And then uh, when The Simpsons came out, it was like, get the VCR ready. There's going to be a whole 30 minute show of The Simpsons. So I had taped like every Simpsons episode basically um, until I graduated from high school. I had just this stack of videotapes. There was like every Simpsons and uh, watched them repeatedly. Like, you know, I probably watched each episode like 10 times. So I was into comedy, into music, into film. They all felt like they were part of the same thing. My sister got me really into Twin Peaks. So I was into Twin Peaks and like when oh, it was man. on when it was on TV. And I went as Agent Cooper for Halloween when I was like 12 or something like that. And like, nobody knows who you are if you're just in a trench coat and a suit, but um, with your hair slicked back or whatever. <laughs> But uh, so I was just, I was into all this um, indie stuff at a young age and there was, you know, Pensacola had some kids into it, but we had, we didn't have really good, there weren't that very good venues for bands. Like bands just didn't come through. You'd have to go to New Orleans, which is about three hours or Atlanta. And uh, there was a film, I guess there was a theater that had some okay stuff, but it was hard to get access to things. And so um, I just, I I understood all these principles really early, which is like indie versus mainstream and the scarcity of certain culture. And the fashion stuff just came later. And I think the fashion stuff also came through music because I was into the Japanese musician Cornelius. And then when I saw Bathing Ape, Cornelius's whole kind of shtick was Planet of the Apes. And so I was into Planet of the Apes again. Is this like the drop video and stuff? This is pre-drop. This is like, this was Phantasma. Um, And I saw... A Planet of the Apes t-shirt. And I was like, I want that. And that turned out to be Bathing Ape. So the music, and especially at that time, streetwear was really tied in with music, at least on the Japan side. So if you were into bands, you would, you would, you know, wear the brands they were into. I think on the US side, it was more into skateboarding, but, um, which I, I, I have, I'm, I'm not an athlete. I'm very tall, but I'm not an athlete. And I would like to blame my center of gravity being really high for being a terrible skateboarder or something, but I just, I can't sure. do any of that stuff. So, uh, yeah, I mean, so the music it is the thing. And, and I, I don't know if music means as much to kids these days. I think they probably listen to music but, and it's great stuff to put on the background of their TikTok videos. But, you know, um, I remember like literally racing my friend in a car in high school to buy some album that came out that day, like that Tuesday. It was like school finishes at 3.30 and we're going to drive to whatever the CD store and see who can be the first person to get this record. And I, I, you know, that obviously is all gone now because you just log on to a website. That's my 
biggest gripe, like right now with, you know, of the many gripes I have about, especially about music, because I feel like access and how so much stuff is restricted made when I first experienced it so much more rich, you know, especially when like, you know, when you're talking about the Simpsons, or you're talking about all these other things, like sure, you're getting it through, you know, vicariously through others, but you're also like, it's so scarce, you can't get it. Yeah. You know, there, there was no Simpsons VHS, anything you had to make it yourself. You know, I remember stuff. It's like I would call and I would request a song on the radio and I would stay up all night <laughs> with my fingers on the play right. and record button so I could get the song. And when I got it, I listened to it over and over again. I, you know, so like because of how much work I had to to put in to get this stuff, the memories I have with some of these songs are so rich. Like they're very emotional. Like I listen out of nowhere, like the Blue Album all the way through, which I know like for some people is really trite now, but like there's so many memories I have. Like there's smells that came in of like being at my cousin's house and, you know, hanging out in their basement. And, and you know, and, and I think like, like it's what makes especially people around our age the connection to music so deep because it's also this like rite of passage into your own opinion mm -hmm. like and i think like that's the thing that i i love so much and like i've saw that so much within your book is like oh man there's a lot of deep music references of like very if you know you know people um but you had mentioned earlier that you you wanted to be on a 7 inch were you playing music ever yeah i made music and that was the thing that i was very into in high school I had a band that did kind of alternative pop stuff and uh, I had a four track and so okay. I spent a lot of high school making four track tapes and learning how to do all that when I got to Japan I, there's a musical instrument district called Ochanamizu and I was going there and they had just come out with the SP202 sampler like it was a little sampler that you boss right yeah it's boss and then the yeah DR202 Dr. Groove drum machine, which is like the first drum machine that was like, this is for electronic music. Like it has a drum and bass pattern yeah. and stuff. So I picked those up and I came back and I was going to try to make this kind of hybrid um, electronic uh, alternative stuff, uh, which sounds terrible in hindsight. It probably was terrible. But the other thing is that those, those, those are like terrible pieces of equipment. You can't do anything with them. And, but I made a bunch of stuff in college and started moving more into understanding how Pro Tools works and all that. And then when I graduated from college, because I got into D DJing. So I was like collecting records and DJing in, in college and, and mostly like kind of Japanese, um, rare Japanese stuff. And then in New York, I went back to songwriting. I kind of relearned piano. I bought like a, a book of that like you know what's the um dummies guide to music theory or whatever and just like oh that's what sure. a, that's what a6 is great got it and so um <laughs> i i because i you know i had studied piano in, in in uh i guess middle school it was terrible at it and i they kept making me do all these competitions where it would be like 14 of us and they'd be like and announcing the winners number 13 and then they would go up and like they would just would call every single person except for me and it was just so oh. humiliating and then finally i was like can i just not do these like i'm just not good at it like please don't make me do it but what was so frustrating is i love music but piano felt so far away from it it just felt completely disconnected and no one sat me down and said if you like the beatles play some beatles songs so i had to relearn all of that after college and got very into songwriting on piano because i felt like songwriting on guitar was really forcing me to use the same chords over and over again or just think this the same way piano was a lot free more freeing and then that opened up a bunch of new songwriting and then i did um I did a couple of EPs and a short album of kind of hybrid, like using 
using Pro Tools, the thing I realized with Pro Tools that you could do is you could record uh, 40 seconds in one genre and then flip into the next 40 seconds being in a completely different genre because there was no longer a thing where, you know, hey, you only have 16 tracks, you're in a studio, you can, you know, just go off and, and do all this stuff. I'll send it to you later. But it's it, the idea was to really make almost every song its own sound world and have them all kind of connected in, in a sense. Um, and it was meta music and it was definitely kind of about music about music. And so I did all that and you know, um, the, the guys who put out the record were two Pitchfork reviewers. And this is when Pitchfork was like at its prime. And it was like, like Kasky. It was Nick Sylvester and Matt LeMay. And, um, okay. and they, they were like, we're going to put this out. And then at the time it was like, well, if they put it out, then Pitchfork is going to review it. And then it's going to be huge because that's the way it works. And then of course, Pitchfork was like, we can't put out, we can't review a record <laughs> that like our own writers put out. Like that's- Wait, Pitchfork had an editorial journalistic integrity yeah well, apparently what year is this this is like 2005 <laughs> uh, so then they're like we're gonna send it to i don't know mark hogan or someone and he's gonna decide whether to review and of course he like, hates it so it like it never goes anywhere but um you know so i was i yeah, i was making music and um writing at the same time and blogging and i just felt so much more response from writing that i thought the the music i was making really made me happy and probably no one else and the writing i was doing was making some people angry but at least it was getting response and I was getting it just felt alive and maybe that mm. in some ways also you know this is like a therapy session or something at this point but you know maybe the reason I'm I stepped back from talking about myself is that I did feel like music was really personal and the writing was more objective and then maybe that was my calling to kind of have you know be a more objective eye on things rather than trying to present people with your kind of deepest personal side which I think you know great music is it, it does that and so uh, anyway so I gave up making music for you know basically uh, i guess maybe like 2008 i kind of stopped making stuff maybe even earlier i had a i had a huge burst after college and i just stopped and focused on other things and then in the last two years with pandemic i was like you know all those He's back it's like all those synthesizers that i used to think i could never afford that that's four hundred dollars you know i some suddenly realized like oh i could probably buy that now so and then there's this huge um renaissance right now of all these small indie electronics places making either clones of the original pieces of you know drum machines and synths that are dirt yeah. cheap or just like weirdo noise boxes that are really fun so um so yeah i like got my pro tools all set up and started figuring out how to do it and it was fun but i could not finish a song and and it just was plagued that i could not finish a song and i just finished like one song this year and that was enough to be like now i know how to finish songs and so now it's like six <laughs> six songs later um so i've got i'm working on i mean this this is also indulgent and ridiculous but uh i'm working on this like glitch uh micro house set of songs like uh, you know a no this is amazing when nobody nobody has called for nobody's interested at all but i you know you you go on instagram you see people showing off their gear and there's so much kind of you know just <laughs> like here's my gear i'm gonna it press all a comes back to instagram yep it does but it, you know seeing all these people's gear and it, it's cool gear like there's all these wires and there's all these like lights yeah. flashing but the whole thing is like you just press a button and then you have it go and it's like you know just making like drone sounds. And I was like, I really, really want, what's like the opposite of drone? It's like really clipped, like really, really tiny sounds. And so I wanted to go back and make like rhythmic things with tiny sounds. And that's where I got into like looking back at kind of micro house from 20 years ago. But, um, Anyway, yep. So I make I, I make music. I just don't talk about it much because the same the same problem. It feels very personal. I think first off, thank you for sharing. Yeah. But um what 
all music is personal. I mean, sure. it's, it's, it's in my head, it's just like writing. It, it's, it's, it's trying to communicate with in a nonverbal way. And even though like someone would sing a song and that's verbal or whatever, but like, it's, it's, I, I don't know, like for me, music is still, um, I think it's still how I connect with anything. And, and every, every experience I have, I always measure based um, around music. It's why, like, I don't know, all of a sudden, like, I got crazy into Dylan the past, like, five years. Like, at first off, I read three different Dylan bios, mm. which was dumb. Um, Then, you know, I, like, got so into all the Dylan stuff that I, like, I all of a sudden will, will argue for hours that New Morning is the best work he ever did. You know, like, like, there's just something about music and the experience that the musician has at that time, the amount of access to that person, because you don't have a direct conversation with that person. It's through something that's going on in their brain. There's so much mystery in mm -hmm. it. Like, I still think music, it's just the highest art anyone could ever make. And someone's going to clap back at me over that. But it's, yeah. So props to you for making music. I hope you keep making it. Like, I mean, I'm a, I'm a failed musician. I mean, I, I've made a few different records and tracks and like got to tour with cool bands and stuff like that and you know I, I sit before you a broken man yeah no i'm i am a failed musician too we can start a club um and the thing that's interesting too is i was i started really getting into making music once i finished the manuscript of this new book because i was like i need to do something else with my brain and this would be great mm -hmm. and so i started working on it and it was pretty fun i completely blew my ears out because i just did not quite understand that i'm old and my ears are not as strong as they used to be and so i was dealing with like real ear issues and then i just bought some earplugs and okay i i use earplugs when i make music that totally solved it so that was easy and then i was not finishing songs as i mentioned and the secret there was to treat it like work so i know oh, so i like you know i listen to the song <laughs> take notes go back be like well the kick drum needs to be you know two decibels lower and like go through this list and then do another rev and it's great but then i realized like i've just turned it into work this is terrible so yeah. so i'm trying to figure out like a balance <laughs> between having fun with it and a sense of completion but it, i mean it really is like you know especially this kind of electronic music um it, you know you just have these all these tracks and you got to keep adding and subtracting and there's a lot of there's a lot of process in order to get get something done and um it's you know i i i find the completion part to be fun as well but there, it, there there's hard work anybody who finishes a song let alone makes a song is put in some hard work and are you yeah. do you use oblique strategies or have you ever messed with that um i've i've given oblique strategies as a gift before to people, but I don't own it myself. Okay. Um, I, I do think it's super cool. Uh, yeah, those, those things for are For folks that are listening, yeah. it's it's Brian Eno's um, like problem solving songwriting stuff. And it would, they're usually all vague, non sequitur stuff or whatever that's like, um, you know, imagine more air. You know, it would say right. something like, it's like that. Emphasize which is like, the thing you're bad at. Yeah, yeah. It's So it's it's something always along those lines that's designed to help people make some form of Just when you get progress stuck. with yeah, their songwriting. When you get stuck and you don't know where to go. Um, but yeah, but it's fun. I mean, it's fun, but there's, there's just such also an inertia with music making that I got to turn on the computer. I got to turn on the, the piece of hardware that's so finicky that you have to turn it on in the right order. And then, okay, it's not working. And I'm gonna spend 20 minutes troubleshooting why the synth's not working. And so all that stuff is also annoying. I need some hobbies that are just kind of like, just go, you know, just pick up the thing and go. Uh, that one is too much like work. Um, what are the other hobbies? I read a ton. I, I read a lot of books. And Clearly. I mean, you're, you have the Library of Congress behind your head. I mean, it's... Yeah. And you don't see the literally <laughs> like 200 books at my feet that are just like screaming, like read me. Um, yeah, I read a lot and I, I, and I can't read 
I don't read screens well. Like I really need like a physical object. And mm-hmm. um, just in the last couple of weeks, I've been reading more and I realized like, oh yeah, I really like this. I really like the sense of completion and, and reading things. And um, I don't know, I cook, I, I got really into um, making weird beverages during the pandemic. So I, like I started, that started with cocktails. I mean, those aren't weird, but I, I got into cocktails and then, you know, like 10 pounds later, you're like, I got to curb the cocktails. So moved away from having like a three Manhattan, 6 PM every, every weekday to um, making kvass, which is this uh, Russian rye bread soda where you kind of lightly ferment some rye bread liquid. Um, Okay. That one's pretty good. And then tepache, which is like a pineapple fermented pineapple drink. That's pretty delicious. So just like these kind of vaguely fermented drinks from around the world are pretty fun. Um, so yeah, I just, I, I like making stuff, you know, it's like when I'm not, I, I, I get very anxious when I haven't made something like, Oh, I'm, there's a deep, deep thing there. Yeah. And my mom is the Why same is thing. And like my, I didn't realize this until about five years ago, but my mom also is just like constantly cooking and painting and and just doing all these things because she goes totally insane if she doesn't. So um, people sometimes ask, how do you, you know, how do you find the time to write a book or do all these things? It's just like, because I have a mania that has to be solved by doing these things. It, it really does make it easy to be productive when your mind won't let you not be productive. So, so yeah. So why I, do you think that is? Because I mean, I, I, I say this as I have the exact same thing so I, I did not go to college, like, and I, it has haunted me in many ways. Cause my thing was like, I'm going to go to New York. I'm going to play in a band. I'm going to do all this shit and then I'll come back to it. And I never did. And that's fine. But because of that, I've always felt like less than based on what I've achieved. And so I've forced myself to be in a constant pursuit of learning something at all times. And I can't do anything unless I can be better at it or more intelligent at it than anyone else I know. And it's, and I recognize it's not good. Mm -hmm. Like I got into watches and I was like, well, I can't get into watches unless I get into everything. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to learn all of this stuff. So when someone asks me, I can say, I can answer whatever they want. Like I can back up anything that I like because I'm an expert at what I like. And because of that, you know, um, um, my cousin is like a genius and is reads tons of stuff. I mean, he's, he's similar to you. Like he's just there. There's just a wealth of knowledge hidden in various compartments and they can access it whenever they want. And I was like, Hey, what's your book list? Like, give me the books that changed your life. And he sent it to me and there was like 50 books and it took me years to read it, but I got through it mm-hmm. and I got into Dickens. I got into Tolstoy. I got into like all of these, like, you know, maybe for some people like I roll like classic literature stuff, you know, even like Graham Greene, which I had never read and stuff. And um, I was just like going through like all of this stuff. And I also refused in most cases, refused to read anything fiction. Mm-hmm. Cause I was like, well, I have to read about things that have happened so I can find some way to increase my level of intelligence so I can feel better about myself based on things that I haven't achieved otherwise, you know, and I have buddies that went to Yale and Harvard and Stanford and all this stuff. And, you know, and even in my head, I was like, well, I feel like if I'm as smart as him and they have all this, you know, I, I can, I can feel better about myself. But no matter what, I've noticed I cannot do anything of like winding down. Like my Mm -hmm. wife can go and she'll watch a movie or a TV show. Like for me, I have to find some way to increase my knowledge of something so I can feel better about myself. So I'm not projecting this to you, but yeah, I'm curious if that's something you also process or wrestle with. I mean, totally, totally very similar. Um, I, 
you know, I have that chip on my shoulder or I have that devil on my shoulder of anything I write saying there's people who know more than this. And I, and especially in writing Amatora, I had that the entire time, which is ridiculous because I was finding stuff in these archives from the 60s that no one had read in like 40 or 50 years. So the idea that someone was going to be- Well, like, and your book is kind of the gold standard for this stuff now. Yeah. Just, just yeah, so you no, and, feel better. And, and I, yeah. at the time, I did not <laughs> did not in any way think, I thought uh, there was some forum on style form that I just haven't seen that had all the right answers and I'm you know totally mm-hmm. wrong. Um, but you know that devil on my shoulder pushes me to read and reread and double check and be really uh, persistent in acquiring that knowledge. And I know that, there's people I've told that to who say, oh, you don't need to be so hard on yourself and, you know, calm down. But as long as you're not preventing yourself from making the thing or doing the thing or giving the advice, then I don't see any downside whatsoever. So in, in many cases, people will say, I'm not going to publish this piece until it's perfect. And therefore they never publish. It. And so that is a problem. Like you should write stuff and you should get out in the world or you should, you know, talk to people about things. But the idea that you should always push yourself to know more or double check yourself or to be vulnerable about maybe I don't know everything about it in the process of making things it usually leads to better outputs and Mm -hmm. um and it will make you smarter and know more and give you more perspective and um I think you know after leaving school uh at 22 I had I mean, two, I had two things happen. Number one is that I I was never a great reader, even in high school and college. Like I could read enough to get through things, but I didn't really enjoy it. And in college, I started realizing that if I had read Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas by Hunter Thompson and really enjoyed it, that, oh, the library has all of his books and I could just read more of his books. And so I started just doing pleasure reading in college uh, based off what I could get in the library. And then after I left college, I realized that you could read things. And if there was a boring paragraph, especially like a nonfiction book, you could just skip it because you're not going to get tested on it. And like, it, it seems so small, <laughs> but I just thought, wow, like I don't, I could just read for pleasure. And so I became a maniacal reader after college because I realized I could, you know, read anything I wanted. I could catch up on stuff that I felt like I, there was holes in my knowledge, but also um, I realized that my brain was not used to not going to school. Like I had gone to school for, you know, 18 years or something and or 19 years. And suddenly it's like, oh, you don't go to school anymore. You're just an intern at this Lower East Side street fashion, street culture magazine in which they just have you move boxes around and that's your day. Like my brain was struggling and, uh, you know, in reading Tom Wolfe or Philip Roth or all the stuff I read at that time, it was just like kind of being able to go back to school. And then I did get, go get a master's and, and, um, that, that helped as well. But, you know, even after leaving that program, I just, I get really uncomfortable with not learning stuff. And so, you know, I've I've pushed myself to always learn more. This book, Status and Culture, is the culmination of saying what are those 200, 300 books about culture and culture in general that kind of bleeds into anthropology, sociology, economics, psychology, reading all of them and trying to synthesize the knowledge in there to to make it useful to people. And uh, I I also, like you, did not read a lot of fiction. I had read a lot of fiction from the 60s. I'd read like cool books and I thought like... (laughs) I need to read some things that aren't cool. Like I, I need to go back and just read the classics. So the only way I could do this and, and get myself to do it was I more or less downloaded every single list of like the top hundred books from the 20th century, because there's all these lists out there. And I put them yeah. all in order and said, okay, I'll read one from each author more or less, except for certain cases. And I'll start with 1900. I'll just read them in chronological order. And so um, I started with 1900, Sister Carrie by Theodore Dreiser, and then just, you know, moved through this list. And 
That was about 14 years ago I started. And I kind of go in and out of it. I skip around a little bit. And then I go back, like I'll find another book from the 30s or something that I forgot to read and I'll go back and read it. But I I think I've read, read about 120 books in that project and I'm up to 1959. And my whole goal was to kind of read everything before the 60s because I was reading too much stuff in the 60s. And so um, I'll, I have one more book to read before I get done with the 50s and then I'll I'll publish those lists somewhere. Um, I wish that I had remembered all the books uh, well enough to write something really smart about this whole project, but it it was great. I mean, I, I read a lot of things I wouldn't have read. And, and when I hear references in culture to Edith Wharton or something, like I know what that is now, like I, I where I may not before. Um, I would love to do, you know, those drunk history uh, episodes where people get really drunk and remember things. I would love yeah. to do drunk ask me about any of these books because i probably remember absolutely nothing about them but i would be fascinated to see if i remember anything about um uh oh pioneers by willa cather because <laughs> I, I don't think i do i think i, I literally know <laughs> remember nothing about that book but i know i read it uh anyway so th- yeah i'm i'm always forcing myself to read things i i don't like abandoning books in the middle even if they're really boring um i was reading something recently and just being like man this is terrible and someone was like why are you reading it it's like because i can't not read it oh yeah i mean there's what, what was it i i was reading uh um the what was it the the cherno book about um jp morgan and it was like that the the history of american finance and the and the first maybe the first two-thirds of the book are pretty great in the sense that i'm like oh man like that's cool and how that started and how that you know that got connected and you know and it's so kind of fucked up and and hindsight of just like how more or less like 12 people ran the the global mm-hmm. you know economic uh, economy but like it, it gets to stuff of like the 80s and and junk bonds and stuff like that and i'm like i i, I don't i don't care I, I i this is i i was alive at this time this is not this is not of news of me or anything to care about and i was like trying to force myself to finish it and my how i read books which is how i read your book i bought your book then I bought the audiobook, then I got the Kindle book. And so I would sit and read your book physically. And and I re- recognize it's like you're buying a book three times or whatever, but it's like I pay hey, more for me, royalties I will, for me. I appreciate it. <laughs> no, I will my my thing is like I wanna I wanna consume this quicker in the sense so it's like I'll read it. And then I'll read it at night and I can't, you know, my wife doesn't want me to have a light on or anything. So I have a Kindle or whatever. I'll read that. And then in the daytime, because it all syncs up Mm -hmm. in most cases, I will, you know, it'll just pick up where I left off. Um, And like, this was great. And I could fly through books. I mean, literally like I read, I don't know, um, uh, Guns, Germs and Steel Mm -hmm. in like two or three days, you know, I mean, that's kind of a lie, but I read it quickly, you yep. know? And so it was just like, you, I could just fly through all these books and it, it's been an amazing way to do it. But I was telling this to my, uh, my friend and he was like, dude, he's like, if you're not like putting your head in the right space, when you do this, he's like, you're going to look at books as checklists yep. and you're not going to absorb it the right way. He's like, you have to like, you know, and he's like the same way that you're talking to me about how you're listening to these albums and this stuff, because you're putting yourself in a certain space. He's like, you're, he's like, you're just looking at a book as like, I need to read this, but you're not understanding like, you know, some of these people spend 50 years to write a book right. and you're just you're trying to do it in three days and i was like fuck and it really hit me <laughs> yeah i'm i'm sympathetic to that argument but for me personally having the list is motivated because right. yeah. you want to get to the next one and especially as you get through the like the 75 percent mark of most books is just a total slog and yeah. when you get to the end it usually picks up but you know to get yourself through it you got to say okay i'm going to complete this so i can move on to this other one i really want to read and that is motivating for me i think 
whether it's music or movies or books, there's a lot of things that I don't necessarily enjoy, but I feel like I should know them. And so, yes, they took 50 years to write it, but I don't really care and I don't like it, <laughs> but I will at least read it to understand it. But I have realized there's been a couple of books recently that I've read where it's like, I am enjoying this so much. And I do kind of stop and say, don't, don't rush it. Don't rush through it. Don't, um, mm. don't do the same thing you do to the books you don't want to read. Like actually take some time with it. Um, but is there yeah. a book that you find yourself reading or that you've read more than once and you'll kind of revert back to it like almost like an album definitely i'm trying to figure out what those are um one of them is uh, a high wind in jamaica um I think it's Richard Hughes is the author, but I've read that I think three times. It's just a really funny novel. It's the humor. It's from the twenties and the humor is really contemporary. It's very cynical. Um, It's about a bunch of kids in Jamaica who have to go back to England and they get kidnapped by pirates. Um, But that, that one I've read multiple times. Uh, I just read something recently that I can't remember what it was, but I really loved it so much. The other, the interesting thing is I'm doing a, um, we're doing a revised version of Amatora where I'm adding an afterword. And like, that's what I'm supposed to be working on this month. And I reread the book for the first time in quite a while. And my impression was and? like, who wrote this? And that's what I think is super cool about making things is when you get distance from it, you actually don't know how you did it. Like it's mysterious to other people, but it's also mysterious to you. And uh, in, in how long ago did you publish that? Seven years ago. Okay. And I probably had not read the whole thing for seven years. Okay. Uh, seven years isn't that long ago, but I mean, but I, I mean, I guess I COVID wrote it. It was like 10 I wrote years. it in 2013, 2014. It, I wrote it in about 14 months. It was really fast. And I know where I got the info and I know where it came from, but it just, uh, I feel very distant from that person who was so into every single detail and obsessing over every detail of it. Um, it's quite, it's quite interesting. Yeah. That's, that's the one downside that of, of books in a way. I mean, yeah, you can, you can reissue them and obviously there's, you know, you can add forwards and afterwards and all that other stuff, but like the more and more people now with music are just uploading a different version or remastering, remixing. Yep. And they're saying, no, this is it. Like the amount of Beatles albums yeah. I bought, I think I bought five or six different versions of the white album you know it's like oh the escher session right. i mean the, it hits different but at the same time it's like all of these different you know experiences of more or less the same information that's happened and it's like books it's like that's it you know i, yep. I mean it, at least with digital books they there's stuff that gets edited and yeah really quickly significantly there, there, yeah i changed, have one but, yeah. major error in amatora around the olympic uniforms that um were made in 1964 and it was because the information that was around at the time was just wrong and then this woman came out like two or three years ago being uh this woman came out who had met the actual tailor of the uniforms and it's like the entire story everybody knows is wrong and wrote an entire book saying that everybody was wrong and uh the more i looked into it was like she is absolutely right and so uh you know i can fix that in the new version i there's already one error in status and culture i'm aware of that someone pointed out Uh, i don't want to give it away here but there's no way i could have known it 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 was just too obscure and I will fix it in a new edition, but it is painful where it's not like just a, a blog post you can take down for a second and, and, you know, fix and put back up. Here, Here's my unsolicited review of your book. Well, I absolutely loved it. The end, I knew it was coming. And, you know, if people, I mean, this isn't really a spoiler because you still need to read it, but the fact of just like the death of criticism is 
really jarring, and it I was like, it kind of it kind of bummed me. Do you agree with it or not? And no, I do agree with it, and I think it sucks. Um, you know, I mean, I, I wrestle with it all the time, and like my like this whole podcast, right? And my whole personal brand is is and who I am is like being a nice person yep. and kind and and loving, and it's it's important to me. It it absolutely is, and I talk about this with John Caramonica all the time, where he's like, you know, even of him, where it's like his opinion is a big deal. You know, back in the day, it, you know, Pitchfork, perfect example. And you, you talked about this too. Like if you have a good review that makes or breaks the thing. And now it's like, if you're an artist, you don't necessarily need a publicist. You don't necessarily need um, a critic to break what you, you do. You just need to have your own megaphone that's as loud as possible. And if people critique it, the critiques often feel very, very personal. And so the person's like, well, how dare you say that? I went through this and this. And it's like, well, no, no, no. We're just talking about the, the body of work that you made. Right. I, I'm in no way trying to criticize, you know, how you thought about this or how you grew up or any of those other things. You know, everyone's got their shit. And I, even as I'm trying to explain this, I'm trying to be careful with my words <laughs> because I'm not trying to call anyone out. But it's like, you know, criticism improves things. It makes things better. You know, I mean, the, the best feedback I ever get, you know, in, in, on anything I've ever done is always is, is helpful and loving criticism in a way of like, you should focus on this. Mm -hmm. You should, you know, do this. You should do this. And it makes, for me, it makes things better. And I think, you know, towards the end of the book, when, when you talk about that, I was like, you're right. That's kind of a bummer. And it makes me wonder, like, would music be a lot better if we just stopped having Max Martin write all of our songs? Like, you know, would there, is there something, you know, there can, or can we lean into criticism more, but, or is there going to be like a serious whiplash to where, you know, cause it, the criticism now is just like, fuck it. It's trash. Just saying it's trash, yeah. you know? So I, I don't know, but I, I loved, I, I genuinely love the book. Um, and I've reread a few different chapters, but like the end, I was like, fuck, he's right. Damn it. Well, it's complicated because. Because then if you make anything and you put it out there, you just get such knee-jerk, bad faith criticism that you're like, oh, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe everybody is still a harsh critic. But it's kind of useless, mean-spirited criticism. Um, and I yeah. think the main thing I've been thinking about is we have these artists... You know, especially pop artists, but um, I think also with TV shows that are almost like monopolies that you can't criticize them. They can't be moved. They can't be removed from the culture. They can't, they're not one bad album away from disappearing. And, um, you know, Taylor Swift, the woman I think on Pitchfork wrote a review that was like, this is pretty good. And she got death threats. Yeah. Right. And uh, it's, it's a, it's very strange that we're in this point where there are people who are too important to uh, criticize. And so I don't necessarily think everything should be criticized to death and I and, and bad faith criticism is generally useless because the minute you yes. hear it and you know it's in bad faith, you just dismiss it as saying, well, you're just you're just jealous or, or whatever the reason is. I think um, the thing I really got out of John Caramonica's writing in researching this book was I don't I didn't know much about drill and I I listened to a podcast and read a bunch that he had written about drill and he's got really deep in that world. I remember listening to the podcast and, and thinking, like, I don't know any of these proper nouns. This is incredible. They're going back and forth for like an hour <laughs> with just like a thousand proper nouns. I am, I do not know what these things are. Um, but he elevated this thing that, you know, it's not, a, it's not a super marginal musical subculture, mm -hmm. but it's not the mainstream. And by giving so much love and attention to it, he imbues it with some value. And I mm -hmm. don't have a problem with necessarily people saying this new Beyonce album is incredible or 
you know, Drake, even though the house music is terrible, it's incredible he's doing house music or whatever. That's fine. But if all of the critical time is only going to the Monopoly artists and they're not giving equal love to the fringes, then what do you expect the culture is going to do? I mean, culture is going to be a monoculture. And I was talking to some friends about this yesterday, but, you know, in the 90s, no one was thinking, hey, this... Uh, Nirvana B-Sides album is awesome, but have you heard the new Color Me Bad? The new Color Me Bad is incredible. I mean, it's not my thing. I'm not into Color Me Bad, but, you know, when you think about the production or, you know, Paula Abdul, the the David Fincher direction of her work is incredible. I mean, nobody tried hard to give equal time to the Monopoly artists of that time either. It it was a real conflict between two different Mm -hmm. ideas of what musicality should be. And um, because the mainstream artists are picking up all these, you know, legitimately artistic and interesting marginal forms of music and playing with them, then you don't want to criticize Beyonce using house music because you don't want to criticize house music. I like house music. Um, But in some ways... It, it just makes it where we're spending a lot of time focusing on the same 10 people and we just hope that they deliver for us the innovation that we need rather than assuming that monopolists are going to be monopolists and looking at the fringes for new ideas. And um, I think that's easy to fix. I don't, and I think you can make a gradual move too, or maybe instead of 50% of your time to the big major TV shows, uh, you give a little bit of time to things on the margins, but the internet doesn't make it easier because things on the margins, there's so many things on the margins. How do you make, how do you choose one thing over another? And um, in writing this book, also in thinking about fashion and culture and where all these things come from, they get their value not from being marginal, but being marginal with the right people and then watching that culture influence the rest of society. And again, the issue with the internet is that things can just die. You know, they're, they're hip with 40 people and then 400 and then that's it. They just end at 400. And so you look at that and say, well, they couldn't, it couldn't have been that good anyway if it didn't influence the rest of society. And there is something to say about the fact that Nirvana came out and they were a hit artist. They didn't sell as many art, uh, records as Garth Brooks in the 90s, but they made everything in pop music sound like Nirvana. And even in the 2000s, like Kelly Clarkson and all that, all the chord progressions feel very 90s alternative. So that music had a bunch of innovations that trickled down. And uh, the question is, if we're all just focused on recycling the same things in pop and not focused on the fringes, then you don't really get any new ideas. So I... At the end, you know, what I don't want to do is be a bitter critic. I think that also we're, we're, we can't go back to the kind of criticism that existed in the nineties of just pure snobbery of just saying, you know, pop culture is terrible because it's pop culture. And I do think that the poptimist movement was right to say this indie snobbery has gone too far. And it's actually, um, usually over-focused on white music and over-focused, focused on rock music as the only possible sources of innovation where it's like the strokes, Absolutely. the strokes were not that innovative. They could have been a great band, but they didn't introduce all these new ideas to music the way that R&B production did at the time. So that was a a very important corrective to criticism. But we've gone a little too far in saying the criticisms, I mean, no one says this out loud, but this general idea that if if a lot of people care about it, it must be something we should think about nicely and not thinking about what is the effect on the entire ecosystem. And that is where I've landed at the end of the book is to say culture is an ecosystem. Most people want conventional culture. They want to hear a pop song that sounds like the pop song before, and that's fine. But over time, they want it to be slightly different. They want to feel some sort of progression, but the progression only comes from the pop artists looking at the margins to new ideas and incorporating them. And so if you're not raising up 
those artists in the margins who are doing uh, interesting new things that change music and make us feel music in different ways, then you're going to have some stagnancy. And I think that's where we are. So it's, it's complicated, but I do think if we look at the whole thing as an ecosystem and think about how we can increase diversity, creativity, and dynamism in that ecosystem, then you have some clues to the way we can fix where we are now. Yeah. I mean, and you, you do talk about that in the book in the sense that like, Hey, look, let's amplify other voices and other, which is great. But it's funny because a lot of ways that I interact with culture is so tied to comfort that I recognize that I don't actually push myself as much as I might think. You know, I, I, when I, when I'm going to watch a movie, I'm not going to go on Criterion and watch something that's going to like bend my mind. I'm going to watch British Bake Off right? and I'm embarrassed, but it's the truth. And it's like, damn, like how can I find a way to push myself outside of my comfort zone more in just the culture that I partake in versus being so drained by the world and just clinging to comfort at the end of the night every day. Yeah. They're, they're one of the critiques of the Michelle Goldberg column about my book was someone who said people are just too exhausted for innovative art now. And I kind of get it. I mean, I I think it's a little ridiculous because people in the 50s or 60s, it's not like they liked high art because they had more energy. And it's also (laughs) ridiculous because... They were never for everybody. This idea that, yeah. you know, it, 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 there's an illusion that everybody watched ballet because it was on PBS and there was four channels. But I mean, people just wouldn't watch ballet. It was on PBS, but people wouldn't watch it. So there was an elitist domination of culture that that biased towards high art at that time. But it does not mean that people enjoyed it or, or absorbed it. Uh, it's just now there is no bias towards any of that. There's no pressure on you to educate yourself if you don't want to. And, you know, I was thinking about as a kid, you know, you're into music and art and fashion and all these things, and you go to a museum and you look around and, and everything feels completely disconnected from your life. And you're like, my stuff should be here too. Like my culture is also <laughs> important. And yeah. and you feel that. And I think that the entire culture has done that. The entire culture said, why isn't our thing celebrated? Because it means something to me. If, if the whole point, if it's in a museum or it's recommended by critics as an important book because it means something to somebody, my stuff means something too. But then you realize over time, it's like, that's not it. That's not the whole thing. It's not only the aesthetic value we take from a painting or reading a book or listening to music. It can feel good. It can be really cool. But the reason we celebrate so many of these things is because they made artistic choices that ended up changing the way people perceive art. And that is its importance. It's the historical importance of this came out and music was completely melodic and harmonic. Hip hop came out and music became incredibly rhythmic, right? So that, that, doesn't just sound good it's like that is a historically important change and that's why hip-hop matters like it is a like the word paradigm is overused but it is a paradigm shifting event that happened so the reason we celebrate certain things in history or put them in museums is not simply that they're good it's because they have what you know in the book I, i refer to as artistic value it's like something they had an innovative new way of doing something that changed the way we perceive the entire field that it was in that somebody wrote a book that wasn't just a good book but it changed book reading forever and from that perspective, your stuff probably isn't going to make it into the museum. Like you just like, like the British Bake Off's probably a great TV show. Did it change the nature of television forever? You know, probably not. And it's okay. I mean, not all art has to do that. But I, 
I am interested in art that does that. I think the world generally remembers the art that does that. And it's ridiculous to think that we can deprioritize art that attempts to do that just because the first time you engage with it, it's not as com- comfortable. And it, sh- it shouldn't be comfortable, right? Otherwise, it's not doing anything to you. So, you know, I... I Damn. I want to I need to write more kind of extended from these ideas that are in the book that may not pop out so much but I I was bored being a cultural critic because I felt like it was just whiny and I think the the critiques of cultural criticism were correct that it just gets whiny and it gets very um very pedantic and very parochial in the sense of telling you like oh everything you like is bad you should listen to these other things you should do these other things and 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 that's fine and but I I feel like I've discovered kind of a new thing to root for in criticism, which is to really look not at art that is aesthetically pleasing, but art that changes and expands what we can take aesthetics from in the first place. That's very beautiful, honestly. Like that, I, I thank you for sharing that. I think that's it's a that is a mindset. I don't think I for me, I'm more questioning why I'm supposed to like something than than trying to maybe also connect with that and see like what they did that was different. You know, it's it, it's a it's a very maybe it's a very American thing that I try to I I, I make it personal. You know what I mean? Where I'm like, well, I must be an idiot. Yeah. But, and I, I must not belong. But don't you feel like as a kid you know? that pushed you through a lot of things? So, I, so um, oh yeah, you know, nineteen eighty nine or whatever this was. I saw "Here Comes Your Man" the video by the Pixies on MTV. I tell my brother you should get that album. I think I think he did buy it. He may have gotten it from somebody or or he bought it. I taped it. Um, and I listened to it. That was Doolittle, and I listened to it a lot. And it was really weird. You know, as a ten year old or eleven year old, it just didn't make any sense to me. It was felt very strange, a little scary, and I didn't quite get it, but I listened to it a ton. I listened to it all the time. And I don't know if I loved it the first 10 times, but there was a sense that I should get this. There was some sort of pressure on mm. me. And maybe that was a very negative pressure, but it was still a negative pressure that I should understand it. And I kept pushing myself. I think I kind of stopped listening to the album for a while. And then I went back to it in my 20s and was like, this album's incredible. But then I realized how much I understood other music because I had forced myself to hear that. Like I knew those ideas is because I had forced myself to listen to it. And I don't think we're in a culture today that's, that is forcing anybody to push through experiences with art that aren't immediately gratifying. And I do understand that there was something oppressive about the way it used to be. And I certainly spent my teenage years being scared in a sense, like going to a record store and being like, and someone would be like, you don't know Raw Power by the Stooges? Like, get out of here. <laughs> so I, that's not great. Like, but... But, um, uh, you know, Matt Iglesias made this point recently, which is like the difference between algorithms and teachers is if you went to a teacher and you said, hey, I read this book, they'd be like, oh, here's four more books to read. And they're more advanced than the thing you read. Like if you're into this, then you need to go deeper and here's yeah. the four books. And algorithms are like, yeah. oh, you like this dog about Bernie's, the history of Bernie's mountain dogs. Here's four videos of them jumping into styrofoam, right? So it's like the algorithm will send you the dumbest possible thing related to whatever you're interested in because that's what other people watch and people generally have terrible taste. So they're going to watch the dumbest version and you're going to get fed the dumbest version of the thing you're interested in. And so we do need a mechanism and it doesn't need to be an oppressive, mean-spirited mechanism the way it used to be of forcing people to push through things they're unfamiliar with. Um, it could be nice, maybe, but you know, the, it was really powerful to feel totally and utterly ignorant of the history of music to force yourself to go listen to 40 or 50 albums that you probably wouldn't do 
wouldn't have heard otherwise. And yeah. I can guarantee you, I love probably 45 of those albums. And like, even recently, uh, I was watching, uh, w- uh, what is this movie? Um, Something Wild, the film Something Wild, which was on Cr- Criterion. And it was a film that I knew the, the soundtrack was kind of famous, but I'd never seen the film. So I, I watched it. And there's a scene where they go back to, there's like a high school reunion scene and the feelies the band are playing like they're like the band at the at the event and i realized oh i never heard the feelies i knew my brother was into them but i never heard them so i went back and listened to the first feelies record with that kind of idea of oh my god i don't know the feelies i should be ashamed of myself and it's incredible like that has been a highlight of the year and subconsciously it was def it was not like that seems like an interesting thing i mean it was definitely i can't believe i haven't heard this like some sort of guilt and Uh. but it pushed me through to go listen to this record that i now love and feel like i understand that whole scene of of music a lot better um so i mean look all throughout this book i'm dealing with the fact that there are negative human emotions that drive us to do really creative things and trying to you know like i'm not quite uh you know i'm obviously ambivalent about it because i don't want those emotions those emotions to exist i don't think we should make people feel bad but uh i know personally that some of the pressure i put on myself that's negative pressure has definitely taken me new places and you know at at the end of the book i look in particular too which is i write a whole book about status from the very beginning you know i i really hate hierarchies and and sometimes that's the reason i've never been able to work for a japanese company because it's so hierarchical and and it just drives me insane it just drives me insane if somebody thinks they can they know what to do with my time better than i and i can't Mm. i can't work in that environment and so i don't like hierarchies the book is not a celebration of hierarchy it's simply saying this is the way the world works and at the end of the book i tried really hard not to moralize throughout the book but at the end i pretty much say I, I do think if you understand how status hierarchies work you can dismantle them better and you can flatten them you can never really get rid of them but you can flatten them a bit and at the same time we have to notice that a lot of the cultural creativity we've had is directly related to these status hierarchies and the marginalization of certain groups who go on to create this really interesting new forms of art in order to mark themselves off from the mainstream. And so if you get rid of that marginalization, you get rid of one of the natural mechanisms for people to to do things new. And that... I think we should feel a little strange about that because you shouldn't applaud marginalization of anybody and the you know the uh, exclusion of anybody in order to get these you know beneficial byproducts. So uh, if we're going to have that creativity, we've got to create new mechanisms that that we feel better about. So you know, in, in identifying the negative th- emotions and the negative processes that create all these things that we like, I think at least it helps us figure out. How can we flip it and create positive mechanisms? But, uh, you know, critics... Critics, I think the the role of critics is probably overblown, and maybe they don't have as much influence mm. on the ecosystem. But you know, the thing that's disappointed me more than anything is people in my generation who grew up in the same background of being kind of indie snobs now just hundred percent abandoning it and um, almost being reverse snobs of being very suspicious of anything with any kind of pretension whatsoever. And I think there still needs to be a culture of celebrating weird stuff if you want the weird stuff or otherwise it all goes away holy hell that's very that's very moving i mean that like that i think that's yeah that's very true jeez um i think i think we got yeah, it we got a holy lot. hell this this was excellent uh david thank you thank you so much for chatting with me uh, uh it was it was a pleasure thanks a thank lot. thank you so much for having me i listen to podcasts all the time and it's an honor to be on <laughs> thanks see ya You've been listening to Blamo. Our show is produced by Blamo Media. We're edited by Amar Lal and our theme music by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. 
Special thanks to W. David Marks for coming on. His new book, Status and Culture, How Our Desire for Social Rank Creates Taste, Identity, Art, Fashion, and Constant Change is out now. Check it out. It's on Amazon. It's on Bookshop. It's wherever you want to get it. Support your local. Have a great week. We'll see you soon.